Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Allison Wearing. She is a best-selling, multiple award-winning writer, playwright, and performer. Allison, welcome. How did you get involved with the theater world? Quite by accident. I was doing a reading one time from a book, and it wasn't yet a book, actually. It was a manuscript. I'm a very theatrical reader. You know, I love doing the voices, and I do lots of gestures and uh, very animated readings. And someone in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, have you ever thought about doing theater? And I said, no, no, I'm a writer. I don't do theater. And he said, well, if you change your mind, here's my card, because I think you should do a one-woman show. And so to make a long story short, I ended up about six months later, I contacted him and we ended up creating a one woman show together that I toured for a couple of years and then a second show. And I toured that for about 10 years. (laughs) So that's the short story. How incredible is that? It was amazing. It was one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, actually, that conversation. Because once I started performing, I realized, oh, this is actually what I was meant to be doing my whole life. (laughs) I mean, I love writing and writing is certainly part of it because I'm not interested. Interestingly, I'm not interested in performing other people's work. That doesn't light me up. But performing my own stories, performing my own plays does. So how come you're into performing your own, but not others? Well, I think it's an extension. I think I'm a storyteller by nature. You know, I don't consider myself an actor, but the show, I do move through all these different characters and things. So it is acting, but it's not, it's not traditional theater. It's more like, well, it's some combination of, you know, the Irish tradition, the great Irish tradition of spinning a yarn, you know, holding a whole pub, the attention of a, of a whole room gathered in a pub to tell wild stories that get everyone, you know, laughing and so on. It's somewhere between that and staged theater because I am reciting a script. I'm not improvising, but it does change a little bit every night. And I use a lot of music and images too. So it's a multimedia I just know that I love doing it and that people seem to really enjoy it. And the fit is great. Would you say that anything in your childhood led to that? Probably in that my dad, he used to direct these musicals. He was a prof at a university, at the local university. He always did, or every other year, he would stage a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, which these are these kind of spoof well they are they're spoof operas really they're very clever you know they're very silly but especially the the libretto is really clever and we as kids used to go to every single rehearsal and we just loved parroting back we by the end we would have watched the rehearsal so many times that we knew everyone's dialogue and everyone's songs and and in fact my dad used to say that we we would insist that before we went to bed every night, my brothers and I would insist on listening to a recording of those things over and over and over. He said it drove my mother and him totally mad, but 
we loved it. I mean, kids love repetition, right? So I did grow up with that. And I grew up actually also seeing the power of theater, seeing how people can stumble in feeling whatever it is. And then they can come to a piece of theater and an hour and a half later, they can just fly out, just feeling, having laughed, having, you know, had music given to them, having been given this story that uplifts them and sends them home in a better state than they were. I was always aware of that, the power of that. I see how it lights you up. That's really (laughs) incredible. That's so funny. Yeah. You have a pretty interesting relationship with your dad. Yeah, I do. I would love to talk about that. I mean, this is the Better Call Daddy show. (laughs) You did write a book about your dad, right? I did. I wrote two, in fact. Yeah. The one about him is called Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter. So my dad came out when I was 12. Well, he'd actually already come out, but I found out about it when I was 12. And it was back in the deep, dark 1970s and 80s. So dads weren't doing that back then. I mean, now it's kind of old hat, especially in Canada. You know, people just don't even bad an eyelash now but in those days wow no one else in the neighborhood was doing that <laughs> and now when we look back at his you know conducting all those Gilbert and Sullivan things I mean now we can draw the line and we ask ourselves how did we not know but the reason we didn't know is because it, it just wasn't a thing I mean there was no such thing as the word gay and the word father in the same sentence that hadn't happened yet and in fact there was no idea even within the gay community, that it was possible to be gay and a parent. That was brand new. And if a judge had chosen, I mean, if my mother had been, say, homophobic or whatever, and she'd chosen to try to get custody of us, the judge would have ruled in her favor just because my dad was gay. That's where we were as a culture, as a as a society. And my dad didn't realize, no one knew at the time that when he was coming out, the country of Canada was coming out. I mean, it was right at the vanguard of that revolution. And he was at the first meeting of the gay fathers of Toronto, for example, but no one knew. I mean, it was just a bunch of guys meeting in someone's living room. No one knew that this was a historic event or that it would lead to anything. They were just trying to make sense of their lives. They were just trying to survive and trying to understand if what they were doing was as awful as everyone said it was, or whether they were just people trying to live in the truth of who they were and that they could offer their children, in fact, more if they were free. So the book charts that whole experience. And so the book is divided into four different sections. And the first part is called the way I saw it. So it's the story from my perspective as a kid. Well, then as a teenager, a teenager desperate to fit in, a teenager really not wanting this to be happening to my family. Thank you very much. And it goes until about the age of 23, which I would say is sort of the moment when I came out as the child of a gay father in that I was no longer trying to hide it. I was no longer lying. It was my, and I think we all, if we have relationships with people who have come out, a lot of people can tell their own coming out story. Now, the moment when they just stood up proudly in it and said, yeah, this is actually the truth of who I am. And the truth about who I am is I have a gay dad. That was about age 23 for me, I'd say. But when I finished writing that section, it was very clear to me the book isn't done. I mean, my story's done, but that's only my story. And we did come out, or he did come out, in this historic time when the laws were changing in Canada, when the bath raids, you know, we had our own, there were the bath raids in New York. We had the Toronto bath raids. They were about a year apart, but they were just as much of a watershed. Can you tell me what that is? It would be the gay Black Lives Matter moment. It was the point where we said enough, in this case, gay men, 
enough, enough being beaten by police, enough being humiliated in the streets, enough being raided, enough being, you know, just they'd reached this point where now we're really willing to fight back at all costs because we've already had everything taken. So now it's, we're not, we have nothing left to lose. I think it's that point. So in New York, it was the Stonewall raids. In Toronto, the bath raids were, well, a series of baths, a series of gay baths were raided by police as they so often were. And then the men humiliated, I mean, absolutely arrested, but absolutely humiliated. I don't want to talk about it. It's just, um, yeah, too horrific. I think it was just there had been so many. And there was also this example of a greater sense of rights and liberties in New York. So they had that reference point. And I think they just thought, now's the time. We're taking to the streets. We're going to march. We're going to say enough. We're going to go in front of the police station and say, we're not taking this anymore. You can't do this to us anymore. We are citizens and so on. And that was, you know, as with all movements, it was a turning point, but it didn't mean there was, it was the end of anything. It was in fact, the beginning of something. It was the end of a one way of being and the beginning of something else. That happened while my dad was coming out. He wasn't arrested, but he was in that protest. And a lot of the people he knew were arrested and he knew one of the bar owners and so on. So I knew that I wanted to write about that as part of our family story, but I didn't know anything about it as a kid. And so I couldn't include it in my section because it wouldn't have made any sense. And for a while, I tried to go back and forth and kind of weave historical information into my own story, but it was just not working. It's just the voices were too jagged. I just wasn't enjoying the way that it was feeling, the way it was flowing. And so I went to interview my dad and uh, I said, I've got a bunch of questions just about certain aspects of the movement and so on. And I'd never asked him things like, you know, when did you first have the hots for a boy? I never, you don't generally ask your dad that. <laughs> and what was it like to marry a woman? You know, I never asked him any of those things. I made this date with him and I went into Toronto and, and said, I've got a couple of questions. I have my notebook. And then in response to one of the questions, he just looked very pensive and said, well, and then he went down to the, his basement and he was gone for a little while. And then he came up with this box and he said, this might be helpful. And this box, he had not opened it in 30 years. It's like this, the, the writer's dream, right? And in this box was his letters, his diaries from the years that he was coming out, newspaper clippings of the time, drafts of letters that he was writing to close friends, trying to tell them this or trying to ask them about this, letters he'd received. I mean, it was a treasure trove. It was an absolute treasure trove. Well, as soon as I saw it, I thought, here's, here's the rest of the book. This is actually what I'm looking for. So the second part of the book is called The Way He Saw It. And what I ended up doing was, in fact, putting all of those documents into my computer. I mean, I just transcribed everything. And then I went through and gradually pulled out what was most salient and what really told the story. And it is a, it's a real collage of all those things, journals, letters, clippings, because the newspapers at the time were saying, you know, this is a psychological disorder and, you know, with the right counsel, people can cure themselves. I mean, that was still the case in the seventies. And so he was clipping all of this and, and trying to arrange his life based on what he was seeing and reading. 
So it just tells its own story in his own words of the time. You know, he's now so comfortable as a gay man to interview him now wouldn't be nearly so interesting because, but then he was just in such turmoil and he loved my mother and he loved us. And he, he did see the gay movement as being pretty fraught. I mean, it, you know, he loved the bads and yet he could see how dangerous it was or how in some ways so sufficient it was. He was so torn and so mixed up. And I think what this section of the book does is, you know, for anyone who's wondered, what does that feel like? What does it feel like before you come out? This is what it feels like. And so that's the second section. And then the third section is called The Way She Saw It, because my mom, of course, has her own story of what went on. And I wasn't actually sure how to write that, but my mom's a, a musician. She's a pianist. And I decided to write it as a requiem, you know, a choral requiem. I divided it into those sections and I gave each section sort of the tenor and tone of that. I mean, only I would be aware of that, but it was a way to structure the section for her. And I based her section on a series of conversations that she and I had when I was an adult Years later, when one evening, it was after her second husband had died, you know, we were so far past it. And I don't remember what sparked the conversation, but I have finally asked all those questions I'd never asked her before. And she answered with this sort of pretty brutal honesty. And so that section is the way she saw it. And then the last section is just the way we see it now, because here we are. By the time the book came out, my dad had been out for 25 years, say. So, but here we are. And everybody wondered what's going to happen to this family. Because of course, when he first came out, people are saying, oh, the children, they're just going to be so, so messed up. And will they ever be able to have a proper relationship? And, you know, there was all of this. Well, <laughs> people are very funny about those sorts of things. No, they just predicted doom and gloom. And, and then, so what happens? What happens a generation later? Because by then, my brothers and I had had kids and my son had grown up with a gay grandfather. And he grew up in a culture where it's just no big deal anymore, at least up here. I mean, gay rights are so 20th century. <laughs> no, no one even talks about them anymore. It was so fascinating because when the book cover arrived, it was sitting on the kitchen table. And my son was by then 12. And he came home with a friend who'd never been to our house before. So two 12-year-old boys walk in the house and thunk, they put their backpacks up by the front door. They go into the kitchen. And, I, and I'm coming downstairs because I just heard them come home. My son said, oh, wow, this is the cover of my mom's book. And so he shows the friend and the friend says, Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter. And my son said, yeah, it's about her dad. Uh, my grandfather's gay. I don't think we have any juice, but do you want, well, you have apples or? <laughs> he was just so able to casually say it. Nothing. I mean, zip. It just did not. And his friend also did not. It did not phase him at all. And I just sat, I remember sitting on the stairs because I was 12 when my dad came out. And here was my son, same age. For me at 12, it was unthinkable that it would ever be not just acceptable, but normal, normalized. I mean, truly accepted. But here we are, one generation. I mean, that to me is just the magic of what can happen in a generation. You know, if people are allowed to live and let love, I guess.
Tell me about the meaning that you found from all of that. Well, I think that is the meaning. I mean, isn't it extraordinary what we're able to do as a person, as a family, as a culture, as a nation, when we set down the judgment of others and allow people to be who they are? What gets released and what becomes possible is extraordinary. Is un- Actually, it's unimaginable. We can't actually envision what's possible. I would never have imagined the kinds of rights and freedoms that we celebrate here by matter, of course, and then what that offers to kids growing up now versus what my dad had to live with or what I had to live with. How did your dad respond to the book coming out? Well, he was a bit nervous at first because his diaries were going to be in there. I mean, really intimate stuff, really intimate. And you know, he, he was quite busy <laughs> experimenting, even while he was still married. And so he knew that a lot of people... Well, people love to judge others, right? It's the way we make ourselves feel superior. So he knew people were going to be casting a lot of aspersion on that. And actually, I remember him getting very uncomfortable and it came time because this is my second book. So, I mean, he wasn't featured in the first book. The first book was a bit Iran. It was completely different. But he understood that this was my life and my livelihood. And he also, I think, had enough respect for just literature and books and the power that they had. And that I remember he went to bed. I remember saying to him just before he went to bed, look, if this is too uncomfortable for you, I'm not going to do it because it's not worth it. It's your story. I'm not going to do it against your will or anything like that. So if this is too much, well, let's just rethink it. Because by that point, I was the show came first, actually. I was already performing the show. So I that was well in a way. And that was very much my story. It didn't include his journals and diaries. It was only taken. The script really was from that first section, the way I saw it. And he'd seen that and he was okay with it. I mean, at first he wasn't even thrilled with the show, but he came to love the show. But anyway, so he went to bed. It was quite awkward. And in the morning, I came down for breakfast and he said, look, I've given this some thought and I realized this isn't my story anymore. It belongs to everyone who needs it. And so you just do what you want with it. So I said, well, why don't we co-author it? Because it is a lot of your words. And he said, no, 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 no. You're in the driver's seat. You take it away. And that was very generous. That was really, really generous. And I was very fortunate as I've been many times in my relationship with him. but And then sure enough, all these people who needed the story have gotten in touch with my, they read the book, they find out who my father is and they write to him. And he just gets all these beautiful letters and emails from people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being the pioneer there. Thank you for doing what you did. Thank you for being part of that movement, but also for sharing these really intimate details that help me realize I'm not alone. There's nothing wrong with me. It will get better, all of those things. Wow, that's really incredible. Can you talk to me a little bit about the one woman show? Can you give me a little of that? I play all the characters. So I play my dad, who's a very theatrical, colorful character. In fact, the show starts with me as my dad and I'm conducting and because he used to he used to play music and conduct all the time in the house and bake. (laughs) And we didn't realize he was gay. (laughs) Anyway, so the show opens with that scene. He's conducting, he's making croissant and he's conducting. And then I go into my character as a child. I would have been seven or eight or something. And it goes that way all 
through the show. I sometimes I'm speaking to him as a child or my, you know, I'm speaking to my mother or something, but, and they both were musicians, neither of them professional musicians, but there was a lot of music in our house. They played, they both played the piano and, you know, my dad conducted these musicals and stuff. And so there's a lot of music in the show because I feel that their presence in the show is the music. And so sometimes I'm in dialogue, almost the music is a stand in for them. It's got its own arc. You know, there are moments that are really sad. The scene with my mother is in fact, every time I do it, someone says, I just couldn't get through that scene without crying. I was just um, so moved. Yeah, because it, it was for her such a tragic story. So there's that, but it's also extremely funny in moments. There's a scene where my friend and I used to, the only friend I ever told, I told her when we were very drunk and we were dancing to the Bee Gees. So I do this scene where she is, well, where we have this ridiculous conversation and she revealed actually. So here I spill my secret. Finally, I'm, you know, I'm sort of drunk and beyond inhibitions at that point. And we've got the Bee Gees cranked up, <laughs> cranked up which is the most ridiculous music to have in a serious conversation to, but it fits because it's just so ironic and so, so painfully funny. And then she revealed after I tell my secret, she, she revealed that in fact, her father had been having an affair with someone who lived on the other side of town and she had had a child with him. Here we both were, we were both carrying this huge secret. And then when we shared it, well, her line was, I mean, she just couldn't figure out which one of our lives was more screwed up. <laughs> that was her great line. Yeah, so your dad's a fag, big deal. My, you know, at least he's not a lying, cheating son of a... Yeah, so we had a good laugh. We're still friends. I mean, that was such a bonding moment and experience because we knew we had to carry the other's secret. Oh my God, I love that. Wow, what was the song? Was it Staying Alive? It was Staying Alive, yeah. That's the one that appears in the show. The funny thing is though, this is a really funny detail of that story because she and her parents came to that show once together and he must have known. I mean, who? I of course I change her name. I disguise everybody and I don't name her. The thing is, he's still not out. That secret is still kept. So he's still in the closet with that one. And so he asked her on the way out, who do you think that Jessica Bell is? Jessica's the name in the show. And she said, ah, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> oh, that's the wow, level of denial. Crazy. I mean, that's just, that is like just capital denial, isn't it? Amazing. I know she wrote me immediately afterwards and told me that. And what was also really interesting, so I've performed all over the country and so often, I mean, so, so often someone I went to high school with would show up because we now live all over the place. They would show up and say, oh my God, I had no idea you were living that at the time. And then it was, my mother was an alcoholic. My brother committed suicide. My father was depressed, whatever it was. It was astonishing. The number of people who were carrying something, all of us projecting this image of we're fine, everything's fine. And just how painful that was. Imagine, I think we're better at that sort of thing now. People do talk about things more. People do actually get help now. And we didn't in those days. The order of the day was to hold it together. Don't reveal anything. Don't talk about anything. And as long as we don't talk about it, everything will be fine. What would you tell your 12-year-old self? I think I'd use Dan Savage's line, which is it gets better. It does actually get better. You don't think it will 
at that age and stage of things. You can't imagine it getting any better. And, and I think for anyone, it doesn't matter whether their father's gay or whether they're, you know, there's some family situation or they're, they are themselves experiencing depression or whatever it is. It's so difficult to know when you're, especially those tween, that, that, those ages, it's so dangerous actually, because you don't have perspective. We don't have perspective. We don't, we can't imagine a future time when it's not going to be this painful. Also, what was it like when your mom found someone else? Well, that was worse, actually. (laughs) I mean, having a gay dad was nothing to having a stepfather who drank too much. That was far, 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 far worse. It was so ironic because, of course, everybody was saying, oh, thank goodness, you know, she's getting married again and it'll be such a stabilizing influence for the children. And he was a pillar of the He was on the outside, you know, your classic, nice little heterosexual man who was going to take care of everyone. And it was disaster. All I can say is it was more difficult. The thing about living with an alcoholic is that they are in the closet. Whatever it is that's making them drink is what's causing them to drink. And that is something they're holding, either not dealing with, not able to process what childhood trauma, doesn't matter what the origin is, whatever it is, isn't out yet. And so that person isn't living a full truthful existence. You know, when my dad came out, he was this living embodiment of someone who was fully expressing himself, fully truthful, fully transparent, fully available. His heart was actually fully available in a way that an alcoholics just isn't, it, it, it can't be. And so that was very interesting to witness that we would go to Toronto and feel such relief, even though people were saying, oh, you know, it's this dissolute life and you know, what a terrible thing for the children to be exposed to. We couldn't wait to get there. And then coming back to our house, oh, I used to just, my stomach would just be in knots going back. I talk about it in the book because it is such an interesting detail. What a contrast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just want to rush to my stepfather's defense as well, because he was actually a very sweet guy and he really tried. He really wanted us to be a family. He wanted to love us. He wanted to make my mother happy, but all of those things aren't possible when you're also an alcoholic. I have a lot of love. He died, I have a, but I have a lot of love and respect for him a lot. And my mother, bless her heart, She had this whole experience with her first marriage and then this experience with her second marriage. And she was heroic. First of all, never, she was never homophobic. She never stopped us having a relationship with our father or or tried to put any sort of negative spin on that. She was very accepting and understanding of that. And then I think she dealt really heroically with this second marriage. And of course they had certain things. I have lots of memories of them laughing and, you know, they, they did have some good times, but I think it's, I just should say that just to balance the whole story. So it wasn't just you know, white and black. It was, it was more, it was more nuanced than that as these things always are, but it was a real lesson, especially when I looked back to write the book about it. Wow. How therapeutic has this been getting all of this off of your chest? Not at all. The the answer to that is not at all. Yeah. Because the thing about a story like this is that it's only fully ripe and ready to be shared with people if it's processed, if you've actually done the work. And this is part of what is, I think, um, one of the misconceptions about memoir writing is that it's this cathartic writing and you kind of get it off your chest and then let the world read it. No, no. (laughs) The getting it off your chest writing and the cathartic writing is great for journals. 
and that is step one of, let's say, a hundred before it becomes a book. It's very important and necessary, but memoir, in order for it to be ready to be read by someone else and enjoyed by others and and have it be a story that other people can relate to, we really need to have separated from the story and done the emotional work necessary to make that happen. So we need to be able to look at all of our characters from all sides so that we're not just painting these horrific pictures of people, for example. And in writing the book, it was interesting when I came to the piece about my stepfather, because it was so nuanced. It wasn't just, you know, bad alcoholic stepfather. If it had been that, the character would have fallen flat. So one of the things, because I teach a lot of memoir writing, and, and one of the many exercises that we do is to make sure that we have separated fully from the story, because only then can we begin to sculpt it as writers. Before then, it's our story, me and my story. But it needs to change from my story to a story. And then we can start to see, oh, what does the story need? How do we shape the story? What characters does the story need? How much do we need to know about each character for the story's sake? And what's beautiful about that is that people don't begin that way, but in the process of writing, the story actually separates more and more and more from them. And it can be incredibly therapeutic, but not because it's cathartic, not because we're getting it off our chest, but because we're learning to see it as a story. We're learning to see ourselves as a character in a story. And then we realize this isn't me. This isn't who I am. This is something that happened to me. This is something that shaped me, but I'm actually so much more than this story. And when we begin to shape a story as a piece of memoir, I think it's, it's very empowering for that reason, for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Can you tell the audience the difference between a memoir and an autobiography? So an autobiography is, here's what happened to me in my whole life. These are who my parents were. This is where I went to school. This is some this great thing, this great thing. It's the whole kit and caboodle. And it tends to be very interesting for the person writing it. <laughs> and not very interesting for everybody else, unless you're famous. That is where an autobiography really soars, is when we know someone, say Michelle Obama, and we want to know everything about her. We don't want to know where she went to school. We want to know when did she meet uh, Barack. No, 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 no. We want all those details. Unless you are that person and your fans are dying to know every detail about you, it can't be of interest to other people because we don't. We have no relationship to those details. They're just details. An autobiography is the story of a life. And memoir is the story from life. It is a very narrowly focused wedge of time. It can focus on a single relationship, an event, a place, but it is a very clearly delineated piece of your life. And when we focus on one single piece of life, I, I say it's sort of like light, you know, you can light up a huge space of time, your whole life, for example, but that light isn't powerful. You can't go deeply into any one thing because you're trying to go everywhere. But when you narrow the focus of a story to one thing, one aspect, one moment, one, as I say, relationship, whatever it is, you narrow the power of that same light and suddenly it can penetrate really deeply. Suddenly you can start 
to excavate the meaning of that story. And in so doing, the paradox is you can actually talk about your whole life, but from this one perspective. The thing that makes a memoir valuable is what it offers. And a memoir charts a shift. It charts a change of some kind. It charts, even if that change is simply how we look back and see something in our past, we're no longer seeing it from the perspective of the person who lived it. We now see it from this angle. And the moment we begin to do that, we have something to offer other people. Also, can you talk about how you develop three-dimensional characters? Well, there are a lot of exercises, but essentially it really is walking behind, learning to walk behind characters and try to develop an understanding of what came before whatever the interaction is that you had with them. It's the same process that an actor goes through when they are getting ready to perform a character. They need to understand where that person came from, what their influences are, what made them talk this way, walk this way, wear these clothes. They can't just put on the costume and say the lines. It's not gonna be convincing. They need to understand, they need to actually embody that character in order for the character to work on the stage or in a film. And writing is very similar. I mean, we all are working with story. We're all working with characters. We just do it slightly differently when we're writing it. And so we need a version of that same embodiment experience or understanding anyway of that person. And people bristle at that when it comes to difficult people in their lives, but it actually can be surprisingly, shockingly liberating for some people. I've seen writers who say, you know, I've held this against my father my whole life. And it wasn't until I did this exercise and tried, I mean, just tried to shine a light behind, tried to develop an understanding. It does, it's, it doesn't require forgiveness, but it often can trigger a certain forgiveness, but, but which doesn't mean that, you know, you're, you're forgiving this person everything that they did. It's not about that. It's not about exonerating them, but it is about seeing the full human being. In the process, we become better writers too, that our character becomes something a reader can relate to. We can't relate to one-dimensionally evil people or bad people. And as readers, we really don't like it when writers are trying to get us not to like someone. You know, I've, when people say, oh, I want to I want to write about my mother's so just to serve her right. I say, um, yeah, probably not ready yet. <laughs> and probably no one's going to want that because we don't like readers don't like to be told how to feel. And they don't like to feel that they're being used for someone to vent their feelings. That's not what readers we put those books down. Talk to me about who you've become. I've become someone who enjoys and appreciates life, I think. Yeah, I really do. I feel just very grateful. I, I just yesterday visited the grave of a friend of mine who died just three months ago. And I noticed on her, there isn't even a gravestone yet. It's so fresh, but, but that she was just shy of turning 54, just shy. And I just turned 54 and I walked away just feeling just how lucky I am to be 54, how lucky I am to have gray hair, how lucky I am to have lines around my eyes, how lucky I am to have a body that moves how lucky I am to breathe, to be able to look at the sky. It doesn't take much to feel just grateful to be alive. That's how I feel. or I try to feel every day. Wow. That's a really beautiful reflection. I also am really curious, like you said that you played your dad. What is that like? And did you have to forgive him in any kind of way? No, I'd done that work way before. No, by the time I came to acting as him 
on a stage. It was fun. It was, I really hammed it up. I mean, he's such a colorful character and he's so theatrical. I just got a kick out of it, to be honest. I mean, it must be weird to watch someone playing you. I don't know how he felt in the audience. The first time he saw the show, he was very embarrassed. But then people came up afterwards and they were just they just could not heap enough praise on him and thanks and so on. He was shocked, but he was still very uncomfortable. He found it just a little embarrassing to have, you know, this whole show about him. And, and it was, you know, it's not always an easy thing because there were moments when he was pretty selfish, as I think people have to be at some point when, when we're coming out. It's coming out is stepping into ourselves. And that is in itself a selfish act. And, and we, especially, you know, this Judeo-Christian tradition, we don't, we're, we don't celebrate things that are done for the self very much, but so often that can prevent us from being able to be available to people. Now, if we're not the fullest expression and the freest expression of who we are, we're actually not the best people we can be for anyone else. So it's not actually a selfish thing to come into oneself, to honor oneself, to prioritize oneself, to do things that bring pleasure, to find our own joy and passion. That's ultimately a very generous thing to do in the world. Yeah, we don't say that very much. So so there are moments in the show when he comes off as being kind of selfish. <laughs> there are certainly people who get up and grumble, mostly men, actually. <laughs> yeah, older straight men don't seem to like the show, but or well, that's not true. But I think they have the most, if anyone has trouble with it, it's older straight men. Anyway, he was surrounded by people who were very positive and just very grateful to him. And so that changed how he felt about the show. And now I don't perform it. Well, I performed it just before the pandemic. And then since then, of course, theaters have been shut and I haven't done it since. But last few times that I performed the show, he would, and he arrived at maybe a friend of his was coming to see it or something. And he, he's seen it about, I don't know, 18 times or something and he loves jumping on the stage afterwards and taking a bow with me <laughs> it's just such a hoot and such a joy no to be able to share that with him and have people see at the end yeah we all came out okay I love that he hops on stage and takes a bow with you how beautiful is that yeah it's pretty moving actually wow do you remember the first time he did that oh yeah I was just I just couldn't hold it together yeah Oh, I just was bawling. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I would love you to just brag for a second and talk about all that has happened from you doing this. Yeah, the show almost immediately just started winning theater awards. And then I began touring it all over North America and, and including Mexico and as far as uh, literary festivals in Sri Lanka, of all places. Yeah, it's opened up a whole world to me. And so the book came out. I've since had another book called Moments of Glad Grace, which actually has my dad as a central figure. It's not about him per se. It's about family history and a trip we made to Ireland to do some genealogical research. That's the premise of it. That's the container, let's say. But it talks a lot about just, yeah, what is family and how much do we, are we informed by the people who come before us and how much credence should we give to that? And is it possible to care too much about ancestry or, or no, it's just looking, it's just asking all of those questions because this is such a preoccupation of people these days. Genealogy is the second most visited class of website after pornography. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. People that is. are, and so I was just curious, what is that? What are <laughs> we looking for? What are we looking for when we search that? And then what do we find when we find it? Those were the questions that actually propelled me on this search. So yeah. 
But to answer your question, yeah, life's been great. When I started touring, I also started teaching workshops because I had a lot of people asking about memoir writing workshops. So I would often do a show, say, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and then Sunday I'd do a memoir writing workshop. And those just became so popular that I started doing memoir writing retreats in places like Mexico and France and Sri Lanka. Now I'm doing this whole online course where it's an interactive program. And that's been just amazing. I had it ready to go just before the pandemic, just before the whole world tipped over. It was as though I was about to go out the door with it. And I just watched the whole world go. I thought this is a disaster. I can't believe it. But it turned out the opposite. I mean, suddenly people were home, locked in, needing stuff to do and wanting to make meaning of this time, wanting to do the things that they had never, you know, that they'd been meaning to do, but had been putting off, wanting to, well, just honor their lives. People were, you know, I think quiet and introspective. And so, so it turned out to be the best possible timing. And, and now we have students all over the world and, and I am so busy with this that I'm now doing nothing else. And I'm just loving it. I just love it actually. You have impeccable timing. I know that wasn't me though. That was just, it was amazing. Yeah. It, it just worked out. I can only say it just worked beautifully. Incredible. Okay. Well, I have really loved connecting with you. Likewise. Please, please let people know how they can find this memoir writing course, buy your book, connect with you, all of Thank those you. things. So my website is alisonwearing.com and that's one L in Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N. And then wearing is like the verb, W-E-A-R-I-N-G. So I am wearing an orange shirt. So alisonwearing.com. And then that's the best way. But then the course is called Memoir Writing Inc. I-N-K. And so you can also look for memoirwritinginc.com. Awesome. Do you have one coming up? Yeah, we have two options, actually. We have a rolling registration. So when there's space, as some people are finishing the course, others are let in because people take their own time with it. And so you can start when the next available space, you can go on the waiting list and start at the next available space, or we have a fall cohort starting. So that's another option. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Well, what's his greatest life lesson? Ooh, that's a good one. All right. Well, that will be on the tail end of this episode. Okay. You'll get to find out. And so will I. Excellent, <laughs> Allison, this has been a pleasure. This has been. Thank you so much. I just, I've loved, you're the most expressive interviewer. I think I've <laughs> it's, uh, it gives a lot of energy and wow. It's just like having an audience of a hundred there. It's beautiful. So thank you for that. You've just such a bright light. It was a real honor to connect with you. And I look likewise to staying in touch. Me too. Me too. Okay. Thanks again. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. What a very interesting conversation with Allison. The irony is that I think it's also the philosophy of legacy included, which is what her next book is. You know, when you're searching for your own identity, isn't it really a combination of the talent that she received from her mom and dad, mostly her dad, when it came to seeing these shows performed? And where she just has loved everything that her dad did. And even though it's shocking that sometimes your dad's not as perfect as you think, but he was so orientated with the music and the performing. She just loved all of that, that she's taken her game, leveled it up and taken his story and her story and her mom's story and has combined it into telling and being able to showcase that story. Some of the crazy lessons along the way. 
very interesting also is that everybody thinks that, at least in those days, that if you didn't talk about anything, everybody assumed you had a perfect life. But the fact is, is that everybody has ups and downs in their life. Sometimes not talking about it makes it even worse. So I do agree with that. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 